This story happened to my grandmother, and it's one I'll never forget. It takes place in Alex City, Alabama in 2007. On June 24th of that year, my grandfather, who I lovingly called Boppy, passed away. He lost his battle with esophageal cancer, and it goes without saying, we were devastated. We lost the patriarch of our family, and it felt like the light of our lives had gone out. My grandmother, I call her Guy, had lost her best friend and husband to 53 years, and her world as she knew it was shattered. A few months after he passed, my mom and I went down to visit for a few days and helped Guy sort through Bobby's things. She was planning on giving some of his stuff to close family friends, one of these things being an antique tackle bait. My Bobby was an avid fisher and collected several antique baits over the years. However, the bait she was looking for was in a tackle box with a padlock, and Guy could not, for the life of her, find the key that opened the tackle box. All three of us scoured the house but could not find this fucking key. Now, Guy was a take-no-shit old lady from Wisconsin, and it didn't matter that my grandfather had passed away. She was not above calling him out for not conveniently leaving the key where she could find it. I can't believe he left me here to go through all this shit, she would curse out loud. After a day or two of looking for the key to no avail, Guy jokingly said, I wish he could just tell me where the damn key is. Well, little did she know she would get her wish. About a week later, she went to bed, but she fell asleep almost immediately. My grandmother had always been a very light sleeper and having chronic back pain sometimes made it difficult for her to get comfortable. But this night was different. Not even a moment into her sleep, she hears a familiar voice as plain as day call out to her. Donna. Guy shot up at hearing her name. She couldn't tell if she was really awake or dreaming, but standing at the foot of her bed was Bobby. He was wearing his work suit and tie, holding his briefcase in his right hand and sporting one of his signature fedoras. Safe to say Boppy had some serious swag in life, and it's good to know that didn't change in the afterlife. He was smiling at her. The atmosphere in the room was calm and serene. Before Guy could say anything, Boppy spoke these words. The key to the tackle box is in my workbench in the basement, third drawer on the right, and it's all the way in the back. And just as suddenly as he appeared, he turned and walked out of the bedroom door, disappearing into the hallway. He was gone. She woke up from this to find it was already morning. The first thing she did was go into the basement to Bobby's workbench, open the third drawer, and all the way in the back was, in fact, the missing key to the tackle box, just like Bobby said. My mom and I came back later that day, and when she told us about her visit from Bobby, I was in awe. I had heard of loved ones coming back in dreams, but for him to state exactly where a missing item was and be right about it, convinced me even more than ever that there is an afterlife and spirits are watching over us. 
I'm Jamie Mark. <laughs> I don't know why that always cracks me up. I'm Michael Tatum, and this is cool intention. <laughs> It's because I gave you some shoulder action. It was that. It's also, you're so good at like, we can be like, rah, 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 right before we record it. Then it's like, hello, I'm now professional. And it's just great. It, it, yeah, it's it, more like, hi, it doesn't matter what I do right now, but as long as it's different, it's going to make Michael laugh. <laughs> every time, every time. I'm a simple, I'm a simple creature. <laughs> yeah, I went overboard on that shoulder action though. It was great. Apparently, I had this weird bicipital tendonitis situation. And then, uh, so I got, went to a chiropractor for that and was getting that taken care of. But then um, the muscles around it started getting really sore. And then I uh, have had a spasm in my trap. <laughs> you had a trap spasm. A trap spasm. And so what's interesting about your trapezoid. No, that's a, that's a shape. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't trapezius, know. Trapezius. No, trape- your, tra- your trampoline. Your trapeze. It's, tra- it's, isn't it a trapezius? It's a trapezius. Yes. Yeah, it's a trapezius. Yeah. I'm, I should know this. I fucking work yeah, out. I'm, I'm not like... even drinking. I'm just in that much pain. So <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I had a, space, a spasm. And because of where it like attaches, the outside of my shoulder like hurts like a bruise. And then up on my neck, because I guess that's where it all attaches and into my clavicle, mm. it's just like I'm covered in bruises. And uh, so then when I went back to the chiropractor, there was a lot of massaging going on, which normally is fine. But when you feel like oh, you're covered yeah, in bruises, yeah. it is not fine. No, <laughs> and so not at all. Oh. Uh, I am, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And then I'm I shook sorry. my shoulders at you for comedic purposes. And now you're Totally worth it. it. But now it was like, <laughs> oh, God, why did I do that? I'll ice it later. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Devin, uh, Devin has had a similar shoulder issue the past couple of weeks. I mean, he's he yeah. works out real hard, so it's not unusual for him to get, like, you know, a neck pain or a shoulder pain especially. But mm. it's, like, the past couple of weeks has been really bad. And so he discovered, like, Biofreeze, I think it is. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. holy shit, where has this been my entire life? And I'm like, I mean, it's pretty good. But so he's been. I have what I, uh, what I like to call pot cream. And it is a cream pot that's cream. made out of weed. <laughs> People are like, oh, does it have CBD oil in it? No. No. It's, no, no, no. It's creme de la weed. It's creme de la marijuana. Uh, it works really, really well. It smells like you've been rolling in weed because you will be rubbing that onto your skin. It works really, really well, but it smells something fierce. So mm, don't mm. put that on and then <laughs> it go It smells for like a my neighbors. Rub. Yeah, yeah. It smells like college. Uh, <laughs> just right there on your shoulder. Have a just pour a little vodka on top of it. You'll be good to go. Um, but anyway, and it's not enough that like gets you high or anything. So that's a shame. But it does work really well. That's awesome. Uh, and so also, that's what I've been using. Potentially helps with your sleep. Yeah, yeah. That's my. That's yeah. been my struggle because I cut out you know uh, sleep aids. I've been using yeah. Benadryl. <laughs> It's just, and now on top of, on top of, you know, my body adjusting to like not having, not just kind of automatically going for a Benadryl every night. My, it's also going, well, wait a minute. So, oh, oh, so you want your allergies to come back. Got it. Right. And it's like fucking body. Bodies are weird. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like, what did I do? And then it was like, oh, I just like aged. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah. Gravity finally got to me. Whoopsies. Oh. Uh, so. First, let me say thank you, Alex Moore, for reading our 
Yay, Alex Moore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That story was actually written by a listener, Chloe. And just for the record, Chloe, we do want to hear more of your stories, grandparent and university stories that you have. Uh, Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. There was a little more to the message, but... We got the good stuff, and Alex was kind enough to read us, where she's fantastic. So Yay. thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, Alex. You're wonderful. Um, What's our title? So yeah, that was good. What's our title our for today? Our title today is When the Fox Hears the Rabbit Scream. And the entire quote is, Ew. When the fox hears the rabbit scream, he comes a-running, but not to help. And that oh. is from The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Uh, I thought it was from a Foo Fighters song. It could be both. I was wrong. <laughs> uh, it's uh, not as poppy in this episode. <laughs> not quite as cheerful. Yeah, this. Because uh, yeah. we're gonna go dark today, huh? Oh, so dark. I'm gonna get yeah. to conclude. Uh, you know, my my deep dive into the Union Screaming House today, and I'm very excited for your topic, which you'll do. To bring us home. Yes. Uh, yes. But before we do that, let me jump yeah. into a few <gasps> news of news the of weird, weird items. Yay. This is my favorite new thing to do. Uh, first up, we have almost buried alive, which is a fear of mine. Not almost being buried alive, <laughs> but actually being buried alive. Right, yeah. Um, a 20-year-old Either Michigan... Either one sounds very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's yeah. a, it's a, you know, it's a sliding scale. Yeah. Um, a 20-year-old Michigan woman declared dead by authorities was discovered later still very much alive in a Southfield funeral home. Mm. EMTs found the young woman, whose identity has been withheld for privacy, unresponsive at her home early Saturday and performed resuscitation measures without success. Based on real-time medical data, such as heartbeat and breathing, an ER doctor from the nearby hospital declared her dead over the phone with the EMTs. Based on the ER physician's diagnosis and her previous medical history, the county medical examiner uh, examiner released the young woman's body to immediate family without further forensic examination being required. At the James H. Cole Home for Funerals in Detroit, which is a weird name for it, like (laughs) Home for Funerals, like... It just makes me think of, like, Gumball's Home for Imaginary Friends, uh, or whatever (laughs) that show is. Uh, I'm sure I'm mixing up two shows. Anyway, at the James H. Cole Home for Funerals, where funerals go to die, um, in Detroit, (laughs) staff members made the shocking discovery that the young woman was, in fact, still breathing. She was then transported to the hospital where her condition remains unknown. Fucking weird. Yeah. Uh, next up, seagulls. Zombies! Are, <laughs> no, seagulls are aggressively oh. spreading E. coli on the coast of Ireland, according to the aggressively? Irish. Aggressively? Aggressively. According to the Irish Post, pest control company Rentakill urges, I love that, Rentakill, uh, <laughs> urges the public to be on the lookout for the ubiquitous seabirds because, especially in August, when they're dedicated to protecting their young, they get ornery. Gulls are not only far noisier this time of year, but likelier to harass people for food or, in extreme circumstances, just randomly attack. To make matters worse, bird droppings have been found to contain a variety of harmful bacteria, including E. coli and salmonella. Rent-a-Kill's field consultant Richard Faulkner urges the public to keep a distance from the birds until further notice. Quote, to discourage the presence of seagulls and other pests from your home or business, he advised, keep any possible food sources well hidden and ensure bin lids are secure and rubbish bags, rubbish bags, are not <laughs> left in the open. This warning, wow. incidentally, comes just a few months after reports of rats in Dublin so large you can put a saddle on them. 
Wow. Ha! Would it, but it would, would it be like a little saddle so it's adorable? No, I think they're big enough to put like a proper saddle on so that's, that's not adorable. Big. That is uh, possibly, I'm just going to say this, maybe it's just a chubby horse. <laughs> it's maybe with a gross just tail. A furry, chubby horse. With a, yeah, with like a, <clears throat> with no hair on its tail. Ugh. Ugh. That's what I'm hoping for. I hate that rats. That is what I'm I hoping for. I hate rats so much. Yeah. Like, Have uh... you seen the mouse art, the mouse street art stuff? Uh-huh. So there's some, I don't know, I guess it's in a Norway or, you know, some country like that that's cold in an unreasonable <laughs> way, but also quaint and probably has, like, decent health care. Um, there is little, like, uh, little street art, but they're, like, little stores for mice. And they have like it's adorable. It's adorable. Record albums and stuff like like a record album store and stuff like that is really cute. <laughs> Socialism. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, graveyard shift on August eighteenth, a fifty-three-year-old employee suffered a heart attack and died on the job at a uh, Carrefour supermarket in Recife, Brazil. I'm probably saying that wrong. Rather than disrupt, uh, to me it sounds perfect. Thank you. Rather you than nothing. disrupt shopping, management simply covered the poor man's body with umbrellas and built up a kind of barrier with beer crates to shield him from onlookers. The body remained in this condition for four hours while the store <gasps> carried on with business as usual. Now, following severe backlash, the company has since released a statement assuring its consumers it has quote changed the guidelines to bring more sensitivity and respect when dealing with fatalities. <laughs> Yeah, uh, man, I bet he haunts that place. I hope not. That would be that would be shitty. Like, oh, great. Now, talk about overtime. Um, yeah, but you and I was just talking to Jack about this. Like, if, <laughs> like if something was a ghost, maybe it's just being an asshole. And he was like, "But why?" I was like, "Well, be honest. If you were a ghost, wouldn't you terrify people for the shits and giggles?" And he oh, was absolutely. like, "Oh, I yeah, would. yeah, I would." I was like, "Maybe that's what's happening in this story." So if you died there and you know that they didn't do what they were supposed to do and you could really fuck with some people, that would, I mean, if you're trapped there, you might as well have a good time. Right. If you're trapped there, you might as well make the most of it and make sure that the management pays. Uh, That's pretty good. So, you know. Yeah. That'd be great. I I would, you know, you have to give yourself a goal. And my goal as that ghost would be like, I am going to shut this place the fuck down. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then I will haunt the garden they put in its place. Uh, (laughs) Best served cold. A farmer in Arkansas was arrested earlier this month for uh, defacing the grave of his longtime nemesis with dead (gasps) animal carcasses. I love this story so much. (laughs) Go ahead. Joseph Stroud, 78, disguised himself as a woman when he visited the grave of his former neighbor with whom he'd been in land disputes for years, Fred McKinney, in Benton County, Arkansas, just north of Fayetteville, or Fayetteville, Fayetteville, somewhere in Arkansas. Fayetteville. Um, Fayetteville, thank you. Uh, McKinney's granddaughter, uh, Shannon Nobles, told the police she started finding dead animals at her grandfather's grave in late May. By July, when the family reported the incident, they had found a total of 16 such carcasses. At first, she said they thought it was, or at first the report says they thought it was just a coincidence and uh, that maybe the animals were consuming the fake flora and just dying. Uh, But when they began finding more dead animals, they realized it wasn't just coincidence. Someone was placing the dead animals there purposefully. The family put cameras up near McKinney's grave with the cemetery's permission and eventually recorded someone walking to the grave wearing a teal windbreaker, a wig, and sunglasses. 
The police identified the person as Stroud. When officers from the Pea Ridge Police Department visited Stroud's home on August 6, they found a blood-stained towel in his Dodge Journey. Uh, uh, the probable cause report said Stroud was arrested and charged with defacing objects of public respect, a class B felony, and was later released. He has denied any involvement. Nobles told wow. police that Stroud and her grandfather shared a land boundary for several years. <laughs> uh, I just like, what is the mentality of that? Like, I he's mean, dead. Now I'll show him what goes uh, on his land right. where he's. Right. Dead and doesn't care because it's he's so dead. Weird. Like, and dead animals. Unless that's there's a little, some, unless, that's... unless, ooh, ooh, in my movie, <laughs> it is, uh, he's doing some sort of spell. <laughs> maybe, maybe. That, and his wizard outfit know, just has a teal windbreaker and a wig. Right, right. But it's some sort of spell with the sacrifice of animals to, to do something to him after he's dead. Like, force him to haunt something. Um, you know, force him to live within the small boundary that they fought over, but just that boundary Maybe. He can't go anywhere else. Maybe. I don't know, something. Could be, could be. I like, I yeah. like that. I like that. I like that Thank story. You. Maybe we haven't heard Thank the last of the, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the best served cold revenge story. Um, right. <laughs> this is this is great. I love this. Roll for initiative. A truck en route to a uh, to a game company in Georgia accidentally spilled around 216,000 dice out onto the highway last <gasps> Thursday in what's believed to be the largest roll in history. <laughs> <laughs> the pickup was <laughs> the pickup was hauling a massive load of six-sided dice for a yet to be released tabletop game when it turned too quickly onto Interstate 75 creating the dicey situation. A uh, oh a, tri uh, a, a Trivium Studios rep says they're the Where was that, it? This was in Georgia. Okay. Uh Roughly half the load went tumbling out into the busy highway, leaving a team of emergency responders to clean up the Cheswick brand cubes with brooms and shovels. They're not cubes, people. Six-sided <sighs> anyway, dice. They're not cubes. Oh, oh, six-sided? Oh, sorry. My bad. Yeah, they're cubes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, can, right. I can math. I can't. Um, <laughs> Though unfortunate it happened, uh, uh, though it's unfortunate that it happened, nobody got hurt, and we now uh, own an official world record for the largest dice roll in history, said the company spokesperson, who was nice. not named in the report. In a YouTube video of the aftermath, a man can be heard clearly saying, I wonder if we should go through and add up what all the rolls were. The average, <laughs> the average nerds. roll. Nerds. <laughs> Fucking nerds. I love it. Well, it just so happens the average roll of two six-sided dice is around seven, so Trivium estimates the roll likely totaled around seven. 7,000 or 756,000, which is pretty good. <laughs> big Successful, I would say. Yes, yes. That is amazing. So those are the news of the weird stories those this week. I had to end on a I had to I had to end on a lighter note with the dice because I thought it was really funny and it just came up on my feet today. Uh because this... my story oh, is gonna get dark. But go ahead. Oh, just as another bright topic, it, the truck rolling over made me think of I lived in Chicago for a year. Um, in Ravenswood. And there was a story while I lived there about this truck that was carrying pizza dough and it overturned on the highway and it was hot. It was in the summer. And so the pizza dough started cooking while they were trying to clear it up and it would just grow and expand. And so it didn't matter how much they cleaned oh up. My it just kept cooking oh my God. Oh my God. getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It was the funniest news report I've ever seen in my and then a truck, so and then a, And then weirdly, a truck carrying cheese and tomato sauce. I know. Skidded just, on the and just like it. <laughs> 
And then everybody ate for 47 days. And we praised the Lord for it was good. <laughs> God, sorry, that's great. Oh. Uh, okay, all it's, right. I'm it's not delivery, it's a porno. Anyway. <clears throat> It's a different uh, kind of food porn. Different, different so. kind of food porn, right? Uh, all right. So uh, uh, let me just go ahead and jump into the conclusion of uh, the Union Screaming House saga. Yes. And um, pick up where we left off. So as you'll probably remember from last week, you know, Stephen was now concerned with helping the home's current owner, a woman named Helen. Mm-hmm. And things were getting real rough. Now, Helen lived there with her husband, Charlie, their, her daughter, Kelly, and a granddaughter for, or excuse me, a grandson for a little while, but he's not mentioned after a certain point. So I believe he went back to live with with her other daughter or other son. Okay. It's not the, the family connection or what happened to the grandson isn't clear, but he seems to be fine. Uh, but so in the house were Helen, her, her uh, husband, Charlie, and her young, I believe, teenage daughter, Kelly, or maybe tween, uh, tween age, uh, daughter oh, Kelly. that's the perfect age to be in a haunted house. Oh, my Emotions God. Emotions and right. a haunting. That's a lovely mix. Right. It always has been and always will be for us because it's right. content. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so fair warning before I get into this, a lot of this gets real, real dark, you guys, and it's not a happy ending for everybody. So just be aware. Again, my sources are the... We're all uh, um, aware and cautiously ready to hear the story and then on a deeper deeper level um very excited very very excited <laughs> just well, speaking for everybody <laughs> and again and again my sources are Stephen Lachance's wonderful book The Uninvited which is the first-hand account of his experiences and uh he's written several books we'll get into that Did a little later Did they make that a movie? Uh there is a movie called The Uninvited but it's it's far as I know and it was I think it was a movie that came out like if it's the movie I'm thinking about it came out in like in the 40s so no relationship okay. whatsoever to this and as far as I know, they have not yet made a movie about uh, their experiences at Union House, but it would make a good one, I think. Uh, okay, so where we left off, too, Stephen had decided, you know, all the, the group of people he had met online talking about his experiences and the people that had gotten to know Helen by going to visit Union House uh, decided, why don't we just form our own paranormal research group? And they did. So uh, the dedicated group of paranormal enthusiasts and amateur investigators known as MPR, or Missouri Paranormal Research, formed around their mutual obsession with Stephen Lachance's experiences in Union House, which he began writing about online in the early two, uh, 2000s. Now, under his guidance, the group now made a point of having someone stationed at Union House with Helen, the current owner, any time the poor beleaguered woman might otherwise be alone. Well, that was nice of them. It was very nice of them. It was clear by the third month that the ordeal uh, was taking a toll on her, Stephen writes. Now, anyone who's ever experienced a prolonged intelligent haunting of this caliber will tell you, after a while, you get kind of a sixth sense for when something's about to go down. Your body becomes uh, kind of attuned to tiny changes in the atmosphere, so to speak, and like any signs that might preface an encounter begin to just, you know, pop up. Um, the hairs on the back of your neck may stand on end. The air seems galvanized. Perhaps there's an odor. Well, in this case, Helen's blood pressure would skyrocket. And this would happen whenever the house was about to treat them to something, uh, some horrific spectacle. While at the same time... She'd get anxious. But at the same time, her pulse would drop to a staggering 40 BPM. <laughs> 
Wow. Um, medication. Did she bike? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's like bicycler. <laughs> right. But I mean, okay. like, but medication did no good, and her doctor was absolutely baffled. Helen's blood pressure spiked one evening while Stephen was with her. Moments later, the sound of footsteps came galumphing from upstairs, which was a common occurrence. Stephen snapped to and raced up to the second floor hallway to confront the presence. As he reached the top landing, a dense black mist churning overhead stopped him dead in his tracks. Helen was right at his heels. The pair stood there transfixed by the inky fog that clung to the ceiling. It emitted, they say, an aura of intense, palpable negativity. Stephen grew sick to his stomach. Torn between running away and standing his ground, he stayed put. As he fought down the urge to puke, not to mention the urge to flee the fuck out of there screaming, uh, the black mist twirled, seemingly angry, and dissolved. Helen caught Stephen by the arm as he collapsed. You did it, she said excitedly. You <laughs> confronted your fear. Oh, if only, <laughs> if, only so if only it were that easy. Union House really seemed to ramp things up after NPR's involvement. Barely a day passed without the team recording something, be it roving cold spots, disembodied clamoring, objects vanishing and reappearing in unusual places, etc. A surveillance expert named Mark had the shock of his life when, while setting up equipment in the basement, he encountered the full-bodied apparition of a hooded figure with red, glowing eyes walking mm. straight toward him from the fruit cellar. Helen's mother called one afternoon when no one was in the house. She later told Helen that a woman had answered the phone. The stranger's voice mumbled the Lord's Prayer in a low, frantic whisper and hung up. Not long after this, an invisible presence brushed past Stephen and Helen as they lounged on the breezeway one evening, growling, Jesus. <laughs> in, my, in my mind, it's just like something passing through going, oh, oh Jesus, saw my back. Yeah, right. um, this is not where I wanted to be. I thought right. I was at a different house. Yes, I took a wrong turn this on is the not, Ghost this Express. Is not, this is not what my paranormal travel agent said to expect. This wrong portal. It was the wrong portal. Why you are there so many happen. ostriches? You know, like, there are multiple portals for, like, and there's different ones, right? There's a portal for uh, ghosticles. There's a portal for demonicles. And so, like. <laughs> Dem demonicles. Demonicles, <laughs> right? Like a, you gotta like a, choose the sounds right Sounds like an portal. eyewear company. <laughs> yeah, and if they like, I don't know what their mapping is like. So, <laughs> how do you, they make just right. get off at the wrong not stop? All, a lot. Not all ghost travel agencies can are, are created equal. I it's imagine true. so. Like maybe it's someone true. used the cut rate one and decided like wound up in like Union House. They're like, no, this is not where I wanted to go. This is a shithole. Um, yeah, or so, maybe the so person funny. giving you directions at the bureaucracy that gives directions remembers you being shitty to them and is like <laughs> oh no, you no, want to no, go to union missouri it's the it's so lovely this time of year and and yeah <laughs> no one and will then bother you're going you to all. missouri <laughs> <laughs> jesus <laughs> that's what happened <laughs> I'm sorry, that was great. <laughs> oh, I just, I just, now I'm laughing. Now it's not scary anymore. Nothing, nothing, nothing sorry, now it's just sorry. a bunch of, it's just a bunch of misguided ghosts that have been screwed over by their own afterlife travel agency. <laughs> Should have been nicer. Jesus. <laughs> okay. I was just bringing it back down. Okay. So uh, around this time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now all I can think of is like, oh God, what if on the other side all I have are those fucking Twitter Twitter trolls telling me how I need to where I'm I'm never gonna get the right place. I'm pretty sure you're not going to the same place they are. Oh my god. Um, yeah, that's right. true. You're not wrong. 
So um, around this, <laughs> they're not real people. They can't go. <laughs> yeah, they're not real people. They're just gonna go into some <laughs> database somewhere. Um, now around this time, Helen's mind seemed to come under attack by violent thoughts—thoughts thoughts that were very out of character for her. Staring at her sleeping husband one night, her gaze drifted toward a heavy old walking stick that once belonged to her father and that was now propped up in the corner of the bedroom. Out of nowhere. Helen felt the sudden, intense urge to club Charlie to death with it. She didn't, Ooh. you'll be happy to know. <laughs> That's good. Um, That's but good. Helen wasn't the only one plagued by awful thoughts of this kind. For several nights, she and Charlie woke up to find their daughter Kelly standing at the foot of the bed, staring at them. I don't like it. I don't like that at all. You got to put some do some sort of bells on your door. That's what you <laughs> well, got to do. Oh, so oh, we'll get there. Um, she wasn't herself, <laughs> Helen would tell Stephen. Now, concerned as he was for the family's safety, Helen, alas, wasn't Stephen's only problem connected to Union House. A somewhat eccentric team member named Alex started bringing books on black magic with him into the house when it was his turn to keep vigil. Helen That's brought this, cool. right? Helen brought this to Stephen's attention and he laid down the law. Alex was strictly forbidden to dabble in the occult while on the clock. Now, this didn't stop him from behaving oddly. On several occasions, he ran through the house like a madman, provoking the spirits to do something big. This tactic appeared to work one night when in full view of the other team members, something unseen repeatedly groped him. What's worse, Alex seemed to enjoy it. Ew, and then Alex went on to ghost, ghost hunt. Oh, oh, and... over time. <laughs> Stephen watched as the odd young man's vitality began slipping away little by little the longer he associated with Union House. Though only in his 20s, Alex was visibly <laughs> his vitality aging. vitality was slipping away. Because <laughs> you got a ghost on your dick, honey. Like, that's what they do. <laughs> and they don't stop. Uh, um, <laughs> the safe word is Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I'm God, I'm going to go to hell. <laughs> and 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 haunt Union House, evidently. Now, now, only in his 20s, Alex was visibly aging. He'd speak of hideous nightmares, stealing hours of sleep from him every night. He became increasingly hostile toward other uh, team members and very unpredictable in his behavior. The house, Stephen writes, began to consume him. The last straw came when Alex begged to attempt a bloodletting ritual in the basement, one he claimed would bind the demons to him so that he could safely usher them away. Now... As if that proposal weren't appalling enough, the ritual, as Alex envisioned it, would involve one of the neighborhood kids who shared in his occult interests. Needless to say, Stephen and Helen forbade him. Alex was then summarily jettisoned from the NPR for his own safety <laughs> and for the safety of Helen's family. Sadly, as several key members of the group were Alex's close friends, they disbanded shortly after his dismissal. Lachance mm. says only that these members, uh, the ones who defected, had already been bearing him a grudge. He, su he suspects the house itself was responsible, like it had somehow sown mm. discord among them. In any event, though, poor Alex was institutionalized not long after for attempting suicide. Oh, wow. Meanwhile, so frightened of Kelly had Helen become, she took to locking the bedroom door at night, something she'd never done before. Her dreams got worse. In one, she found herself dressed in mourning clothes, only to learn the funeral she was attending happened to be her own. In my dream, she said, I've never looked or felt better. Uh, she told Stephen, it's, it's weird. It's like I'm glad to be dead. You know, she'd invariably... Like, that's kind of a fun twist. Like, I'm going to my own funeral, but, like, I look amazing. I'm like, I look amazing. <laughs> Does this mortician do work on living people? Because I think I know. Uh, uh, oh, my God, my great-grandfather, when he was alive, used to go get morgue paint. 
oh, to, to use this makeup. I'm not shitting you. I come from a weird what? family. It's true. That's another story for another time. Why was your grandfather wearing makeup? My great-grandfather. Uh, because he was Same in his fucking... Because, <laughs> because, because he was my great-grandfather, and meaning he'd been around for almost 100 years. He was, he was in his 90s, and he was just a walking liver spot. And makeup, uh-huh. like normal makeup, I guess, didn't work well on him, so he... He he bought like mortuary grade makeup. Oh wow! Yeah, Why we, didn't we he found just try, we like, found some the sort records of bleach cream. I don't think they. I don't think he knew to look for it. His first thought uh, was like, ah, oh, he probably went to a funeral and was like, that motherfucker looks good. I want what he's wearing. I know what he looked like before he died. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. was not it. Yeah, so... true story. We found the records of his purchase after he died. It was we were like, oh, he wore morgue paint. You mean that time we took him to Dairy Queen? He was wearing morgue paint. Uh Anyway, Helen uh, would invariably wake up from these dreams uh, with the unshakable notion that someone or something had been watching her sleep. Now, as intense as all this was, you may ask, why the fuck aren't they moving? Well, moving just wasn't an option at the time. Helen and Charlie couldn't afford the expense. It was also very close to where he worked in a nursing home. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of factors here. Moving is expensive. It's very expensive. Finding a house is expensive, you know, because it's crazy. Now, what's more... Helen also, to her credit, felt an obligation to somehow put Union House at rest because she felt no other family should have to endure this kind of evil. So she and, and Stephen Lachance were, were sort of uh, simpatico on this. <laughs> they wanted to light it on fire and send it to hell. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Please no one sue me. <laughs> Stephen got in touch with celebrated <laughs> demonologist Ken Sparks. Uh, not to be confused with Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> Different. <laughs> um, uh, who listened to Helen's story with patience and compassion and responded point blank with, you have to, you have a demon in your house. You need to find yourself a good priest and get that place blessed. Sparks laid out precisely what he meant by a good priest, including the exact procedure the priest should follow. Getting the thing done, however, wasn't nearly as straightforward. The Catholic priest Helen and Stephen uh, managed to contact, who did show an interest, didn't seem particularly sympathetic. Perhaps because he was so young and full of new ideas, perhaps because Helen was raised Baptist, we don't know. But he went out on and on about abstract concepts like spirits and blah, 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 blah. And when he did show up to bless the house, his idea of the ritual took all of five minutes. In fact, the young man had barely made it to his car back out on the street before the loud thumping sounds from upstairs started to echo through the house again, as if to mock the attempt. Stephen and Helen followed up with Ken Sparks as he'd requested. Sparks, alas, wasn't surprised the priest was ineffectual, giving the matter some thought. He solemnly recommended Stephen and Helen try to bless Union House for themselves, but be warned, it wouldn't going to be easy. It'd be like pissing on a campfire, Lachance writes. The demon, or whatever it was, was too close to us now. The battle for our souls had begun. Stephen assembled a group of trusted investigators, uh, some of the leftovers from NPR and some other friends he met online and that that had some experience with the house to help with the series of blessings they would do. That was something that Ken Sparks said uh, was like, this is going to take multiple times over months and months and months. And the activity will probably ramp up when you do it until you finally, finally manage to do it enough. Now, so the idea for this first time out was to have someone positioned in every room of the house during the ritual. Several team members had previous experience with Union House. One woman, a, a woman named Trudy, had been pushed up the stairs while conducting a walkthrough. She'd then seen an apparition of a man creep into the upstairs bathroom, only to discover, of course, that no one was there. Also, as, it, as far as stairs mm, and mm. being pushed, up the stairs is preferred. <laughs> yeah, it's also a better proof. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> like right, yeah, a down you know, the stairs is gravity. Yeah, or it can be, yeah. you know. But up the stairs. Mm. Yeah. Um, also, do you get up the stairs and then are you like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just had leg day. Thank you. Appreciate you. Um, also in attendance this first night was a group of Christian ladies from a local church. They would be positioned in the backyard. Stephen would be holed up with Trudy in the basement. Helen would be on the main floor with several others. The blessing... <laughs> that the women from the church are in the backyard. They're like, we are going to help out here on the backyard area. Not inside. Backyard. <laughs> oh, they'd come inside before it was over and done with. Oh. The blessing began. Almost instantly, Trudy and Stephen felt that the basement temperature had risen by about 25 degrees. They felt an evil, mocking presence standing nearby as though it were laughing at them. Meanwhile, the group of ladies in the backyard felt a surge of electricity move in, uh, through the air between them. The wind picked up and got weirdly violent all of a sudden. Uh, they then were struck with the notion that something meant them harm, and the ladies broke formation and made for the house, one of them snapping several digital uh, photos behind them as they ran. One photo in particular curdled Stephen's blood. On the right side of the photo, he says, I could see an opening that seemed to flare with fire. This was a picture of the yard. In the foreground, in front of the ring, he's convinced, looked to be several figures apparently gathered around what looks to him to be a kind of mock crucifixion. Now, I have to say, he doesn't include the photo in the book, and so I assume it's not his to share. Uh, but the story is so compelling, I am inclined to believe him. I don't think it's a detail he made up. Because if he'd done that, I feel he would have, like, I, I don't know. There, there's, there's, it just doesn't, it, as outlandish as it may be, I still, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but either event, like, whether you believe that or not, there is one solid fact that happened to one of the team members that is one of the more disturbing uh, of this entire story. Um, one of those present for the blessing, a psychic named Marie, whose daughter was then pregnant with her first child, had a terrible nightmare the evening after her experience in the house. Now, I should mention here that uh, Marie had an intense phobia of clowns. Oh, my sister. Mm. Um, you'll recall uh, the hideous monster clown Stephen's son, Matthew, had seen crawling from the basement toward him and later watching them from an upstairs window as the family fled that night, four, four I think three or four years ago at this point. Stephen hadn't told Helen this detail, uh, this detail of his time living in the house, partly because it seemed so far-fetched, partly because, you know, I mean, who knows what a frightened child is actually trying to convey when they grasp for words to describe some terrifying experience. Stephen had simply never taken the monster clown at face value. He felt the house had done something, and, and my son just, like, what he saw, he only knew to call a monster clown, but surely it wasn't an actual right. monster clown. Because that's, you know, a bit, uh, that's a bridge too far. Um, so he didn't. <laughs> Everything else is fine. Right. That's, that that's is until Helen told him about the day a neighbor's four-year-old daughter, whom she was then babysitting, stopped in the middle of a game, looked up, wide-eyed, pointed to the empty space ahead of her, and just said, "Clown." Mm. It. This, this right. The psychic Marie later told Stephen that not long after the blessing, she dreamed she was standing in the side yard of Union House. A group of people was standing nearby, staring up at the eaves. As she moved to join them to see what all the fuss was about, a strange giggle came from behind. Marie turned in the dream to see a demonic clown staring at her with glowing red eyes. The creature... <laughs> a demonic clown. Say right. clown. <laughs> it's, yeah, redundant. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the creature held a naked baby in its grasp. Before Marie's eyes, the creature bashed the infant against the ground repeatedly like a sack. 
She shrieked in horror, but the onlookers were too transfixed by the house to hear. She woke up screaming. The following day, her daughter's OBGYN gave her devastating news. He couldn't find a heartbeat. Her unborn baby was dead. Oh, my God. Stephen regrets letting Marie get involved with the investigation. Now, whether the house actually did something or simply took advantage of a premonition Marie was bound to have one way or the other, he doesn't know. But not long after this, Helen began waking up in the middle of the night to find she'd been having a conversation with a dark hooded figure hovering at the side of her bed. When it dawned on her what was happening, she would yell at the top of her voice and the figure would vanish. But all she could remember was, uh, uh, all she could remember of the conversation, quote unquote, was that she had been agreeing to something. Uh. The house seemed to be gathering its power for some kind of big showdown. Even Charlie, Helen's husband, began to have experiences. Now, he wasn't exactly a skeptic, but up to now, he'd been quietly dealing himself out of the proceedings, adhering to a strict policy of, they don't mess with me, I don't mess with them. He'd heard his share of thumps while living there, seen a few darting shadows out of the corner of his eye, but his superpower seemed to be ignoring the haunting altogether. Stephen and Helen were playing with fire, he thought. His mother had always taught him not to meddle with spirits. But Charlie's stance of y'all have fun with that didn't protect him from the house indefinitely, especially when shit got real. One night, Charlie woke up to see the hooded figure standing at the foot of the bed, studying he and Helen as they slept. It was there, he later told Stephen. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, but it was there. The figure dissolved as he looked at it. He woke Helen up, who, uh, after he explained what was going on, tried to comfort him as best she could, and then they finally, after a couple of hours, went back to sleep. But later that same night, around 3.15, Helen woke up to see a giant wolf outside the window looking in. Its eyes glowed a sickly yellow and seemed to regard the opposite corner of the bedroom. Helen turned to follow its gaze, and sure enough, the hooded figure was standing in its eye line, beckoning to the wolf. A low, inhuman voice growled, I am here, and the figures disappeared, leaving behind an unbearable stench. Things were clearly coming to a head. Now, from this point on, the appearance of the dreadful hooded figure presaged unspeakable evil. On three separate occasions, Helen awoke enthralled to the all-too-familiar symptoms of sleep paralysis. Only now, the hooded figure was heaped on top of her, violating her sexually. Oh, no. During the day, Helen found herself racked by the ironclad certainty that Charlie was having an affair. Stephen noted a new fiendish glint in her eye when she said to him once, if I catch him, I'll fucking kill him. One Saturday night, following an impromptu gathering of friends to bless the house yet again, Stephen and Helen sat having coffee in the living room. Suddenly, a bright blue flash coursed through the room as though the faulty transformer out front was exploding for the umpteenth goddamn time. They ran to the window... There, on the front lawn, sat Helen's giant wolf. Black as pitch, larger than it had any right to be, the creature glowered at them with sepia eyes. That's it. Sounds like a grim. (laughs) That's it, Helen said. That's the thing I see in my room at night. Now, on impulse, Stephen, uh, with, he admits, probably more enthusiasm than brains, uh, threw open the door and charged headlong for this creature. It darted out (laughs) into... Screaming, (laughs) Right? It darted into an alley. When Stephen foolishly pursued, it turned around, growling with a voice like thunder as it stood its ground. Any thought of heroism Stephen might have entertained evaporated completely at this point. This thing was pure fucking evil. Stephen fell to the ground, scrambled backward, found his feet again, and ran for all he was worth back to the house. You've got to get the fuck out of this house, he yelled at Helen. You're seeing this thing at night in your motherfucking room and you aren't moving? (laughs) Helen gave no argument. 
One week later, she would be out of the house. But that last week would be hell on earth for she and Stephen and pretty much everyone else involved. Stephen found himself unable to stay awake during the day, even after what to all intents and purposes seemed like a rather decent night's sleep. Helen woke up every night at 3 a.m. mid-conversation again with the sinister hooded figure. She called Stephen that Sunday in fear for her life. She was convinced Charlie and Kelly were trying to kill her, that she'd die and be stuck in Union House forever unless she killed them first. Oh, shit. The hairs on the back of Stephen's neck bristled at what happened next. Over the phone, Helen's voice turned on a dime. Gone was the desperate sobbing, the cries for help, the despair, replaced now with a sinister calm Stephen had never heard from her. That motherfucker Charlie is cheating on me, she growled. Though Stephen eventually talked her back down to herself uh, 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 that night, the next day, Helen made an attempt on Charlie's life with a butcher knife. Oh my God. Almost absentmindedly, she gave Stephen all the gory details over the phone afterwards. She got it into her head to kill Charlie at his work on his lunch break. She'd scoured the house for a gun clip, but unable to find one, settled on the butcher knife after one of the kids in the group of friends Kelly had over that day suggested it. She picked Charlie up from the nursing home, drove him to a nearby lake to sit and eat lunch in the car, and flatly confronted him about the supposed affair. When he denied it, she stabbed him. Now, Charlie somehow managed to get out of the car amid the frenzied attack and run for cover with just flesh wounds. Helen followed him in the car and tried to run the poor man down, but to no avail. Then, convinced she'd get him when he came back home, (laughs) she simply (laughs) went back to the house and waited, calling Stephen to pass the time. Now, LaChance here goes into some detail about racing over to the house, forcibly removing Helen. And, get, and admitting her into the ER. And in the long run, the poor woman was committed to the psych ward. On the way home from seeing her admitted, Stephen suddenly found himself driving at full speed down the wrong side of the freeway. How'd he gotten what there? What about Charlie? Well, we'll get to him. Uh, okay. How Stephen had gotten there, he couldn't remember. But in hindsight, he felt certain the house was punishing him for getting Helen so uh, to relative safety. The mental institution would prove a harrowing experience, not just for Helen, but for her caregivers and fellow patients. She seemed to switch between several different personalities on the regular, a handful of them Mm -hmm. downright nasty. Once, while on a payphone with Stephen, she got insanely mad at him for failing to find a priest to bless the house out of nowhere and wrenched the goddamn payphone out of the wall in full view of the staff. No less than two other patients tried to attack her with a Bible while spewing verses (laughs) about demonic possession. Like, they had to be pried off her because they were so convinced she was evil, right? And you'll be happy to know that over time, her condition improved. She never returned to Union House, opting instead to live with her sister a few towns over. Kelly, her daughter, received counseling and now leads a more or less normal life. Charlie moved on and found a new place for he and Kelly to live in peace. Though Union House had certainly taken its toll on them, ripping Helen's family apart as it had tried to do Stevens three years earlier, at least everyone got out alive. Stephen's experiences with Union House eventually helped him make peace with God. He writes beautifully about consulting with a psychic priest who helped him profoundly in that respect, especially with regards to his deceased sister Janice, but I won't deprive our listeners of the pleasure of reading that bit for themselves. It's it's really quite nice. And you'll be happy to know that NPR reassembled. For the first uh, paranormal adventure out in the field after getting back together, Helen even came along. Their mission to explore Zombie Road, a densely wooded area east of St. Louis, reputed to be one of the most haunted places in Missouri. But 
That's another story for another time. Lachance left NPR to focus on his writing career in 2007, going on to become one of the most prolific paranormal writers of his generation. His books include The Uninvited, Blessed Are the Wicked, and Con uh, Confrontation with Evil, an in-depth survey of the infamous 1949 possession that inspired the film The Exorcist. Recently, he's branched out into fiction with the short story collection Crazy, A Prayer for the Dead. NPR now operates as the Paranormal Task Force and carries on Lachance's mission of helping those dealing with forces beyond their control. And wow. that, in a nutshell, is the fucking terrifying story of the Union Screaming House. Thank you for bearing with me over three episodes. It was just, there was too much <laughs> to get into just one so or even good. two. Yeah, it's That's so good. good. I love get it. the book, people. It's real good. And so are his others. Yeah. Mm. I didn't want to mm. get the book until you were done. Right. <laughs> I didn't want, I didn't want I'm leaving out quite a bit. I'm just, I'm giving you the bullet points version. So there's the book that goes in a wow. lot more detail about everything. That uh, is so. nuts. Well done. Thank you, Mr. Lachance, for giving us, I think, one of the best accounts of a first-hand haunting that I've ever read. That kind of haunting, too. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of the kind of standard haunting, which are footsteps or hearing people talking in another room. And don't get me wrong, that stuff's scary as shit. And we want to hear yeah. it if you have experienced it. For sure, send it in. But sometimes, you know, these. I think, too, that you have these huge elevated things that are so rare to mm -hmm. happen that the smaller stories that are still terrifying get uh, people feel like, well, it's not that big of a story, so nobody's going to care. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, we, we love all the care. stories. It's um, just occasionally the, we do a like, deep dive on the big epic that, ones. It's really fun. Yeah. The epic one is pretty good. That mm, one is pretty mm, great, though. Thank mm, you, Michael. Mm. You're very welcome. Shall we, take a, shall we take a quick break and refresh yes. our, our beverages uh, before we continue with yours? I'm really excited about yours. Oh, my God. Okay. Back in a moment. It's Patreon time. It's Patreon time. <laughs> yes. It's when we talk to you about joining Patreon time. Chat time um, with ghouls. That's right. We're here to say, hey, thank you guys for your support. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a Patreon that we are using instead of commercials. This is our commercial yes. uh, for the Patreon. Uh, so Look at that. Patreon. More for the price. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Google Intentions. Mm -hmm. uh, we have several different tiers at the, I believe, $8 and up tiers. We have a Discord yeah. um, and we have chats every month with our Discord. The coming month of August. Yes, we're we going to be have doing two. Our... And we're, we've moved it uh, to we've make it, it to make the time a little more agreeable with our friends overseas. So yes. uh, in August, we're going to do it on the first chat on the 15th at noon. That will be uh, at Central noon. Standard Time. And that will time. be for everybody, right? Yes. That's for everybody. Right. Yeah. In the, on the Discord. On the Discord. And that's noon uh, Central Standard Time, uh, US time. And the 29th will be. Uh, same thing, noon, uh, Central Standard Time, and that one is for the patrons. The Phantasm. The Phantasm tiers. Yeah, the the, yes. the first, the fifteenth is for the all Discord all members, and the <laughs> it's the all yeah, and then the 29th is for Phantasm specifically. Uh, so thank you guys. Um, join the Patreon. It is a lot of fun if you're on the Discord. It's a really great community. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's so There's a cool. whole group playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. They design the teas. 
Um, and it, we just have a really good time over there. Yeah. But also, anything is appreciated. Uh, we Very pay much. our engineer for, for the podcast. Matt, so who is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so in lieu of commercials, we just are asking you guys to support us on Patreon. Um, tears start at a dollar and go up. So anything, yeah. anything is appreciated. You guys are the best. And on to the next. Yes, join us for the spoopy fun. Yes. And we're back. We are. We never left as far as you knew. That's true, but we did. I had to let the dogs out. I had to let myself out by, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> you pee in the yard? <laughs> yes, I like to pee in the yard. It's a, You know, giving it's back, just, you know, giving I like back to, to Mother Nature. nature. <laughs> really, like, feel that universal. <laughs> Me, one with nature. <laughs> every, every little bit helps. No. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> My story is one I've heard a lot about, but nothing ever really in depth. Mm. Just mm. a lot of the general, like, top 10 scariest or most haunted, you know, just like a general snippet about mm-hmm. it. Not a mm-hmm. whole lot of information. And so uh, I did the Los Feliz murder house. Los oh. Feliz. Los Feliz. Los Feliz. Los Feliz, uh, Los Feliz murder <laughs> house in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> Los Feliz in Los Angeles. Las That's a really Angeles. good mouth warm up. It is. Los Feliz in Los, Los, Los Angeles. Los Feliz in Los Angeles. Unique yeah. New York. Unique New I can't even do it. Unique New it York. It changes that vowel placement from the Unique back to the New front. York. New York. New, 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 Do you know I'm about this? About this house? Uh, only by name. I don't think, you know, as you get going, I might know some of the details, but I certainly don't know a lot if I okay, know anything. Well, to set the scene, I just want to describe what happened there, which is why it's called the murder house. Ah, okay. I bet someone was murdered there. True. Yeah. I just, yes. I just, Spoiler you know what? Alert, I just have a feeling. People die in this house. So I'm just going to start like, sorry, guys. Uh, okay. So my sources are the murder house on medium.com written by crime journalist Jeff Mache. That article is fantastic. Hmm. An article by Chris Mann on the lineup and an article uh, from uh, from the L.A. Times by Bob Poole. Okay. All right. And then Realtor.com, of course. Okay. So, uh, on and December Zillow. 6th, and... <laughs> right. Yeah. And Zillow. And then, like, I got distracted for a good three hours. <laughs> There's some houses down the street that are for sale. Let me get in there and see what those look like. Um, there's one townhouse that's for sale near me, and they are two of them put together. Oh. And I've been dying to know what that looks like. And so it's on sale, so I got to find out. Ah, <laughs> yeah, nice. Exciting. I don't know if anybody's ever going to pay that much for it. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, neighbors. On December 6th, <laughs> 1959, so a while um, ago, uh, 18-year-old Judy Perelson woke up with a start. Her head was throbbing. She reached up to touch her temple and realized she was bleeding. At the same time, she looked up and saw her father holding a ball-peen hammer, preparing (gasps) to hit her with it again. Oh. Judy screamed. Unbeknownst to Judy, her scream was so loud that it woke up and terrified several neighbors. Lay still, her father told her. Keep quiet. Judy did not keep quiet. Neighbors would later report that at first it sounded like a wild animal screaming until they could clearly make out a person's voice, a young woman's voice. 
Judy's voice, screaming, don't kill me. Oh, God. Somehow, Judy fought off her father and escaped her room through the ensuite that led directly into her parents' room. There she found her mother, 42-year-old Lillian, still in bed. Lillian would have seemed to be sleeping if not for the fact that her head was covered in blood. Mm. Her father had started his assault here, and there would be no waking up her mother. Mm. Judy's Uh. 11-year-old sister, Debbie, heard her screams and quietly made her way down the hallway towards Judy's room to find out what was going on when she ran into her father. It was an odd image. Her father, the doctor, holding a weird, chunky-looking hammer in the middle of the night. His hands were covered in blood, as was his shoulder. His father looked at Debbie and told her, Go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Then her father walked away from her, dripping blood on the floor as he went. Meanwhile... Judy sprinted down the spiral staircase and ran out the front door. She flew down the concrete steps, paying no mind to the smiling gargoyle in the fountain next to her. She banged desperately on the house next door belonging to the Lewis family. Getting no answer, she began hammering on the French windows next to the front door, smearing them with blood. Upstairs, her neighbors were too frozen in fear to move. Judy then tried another neighbor, Marshall Ross, who finally opened his door. Together, they called the police. After the call and assuring Judy was safe, Marshall headed over to the Perelson house to check on the family. On the first floor, he ran into Joel and Debbie waiting for something. Marshall headed to the second floor, where he found his neighbor, Dr. Harold Perelson, in a very agitated state. Go on home, Harold told him. Don't bother me. Marshall told Harold that maybe he should just lie down for a second until he calmed down. Marshall watched his neighbor walk into a bathroom. Harold pulled open a few drawers, smearing blood over everything he touched. He pulled out boxes and boxes and bottles of pills until he found what he was looking for. Nimbutal. Also known as death in a bottle, the barbiturate Nimbutal is a favorite of those hoping for a quick death. Nembutal is what would kill Judy Garland a decade later. Harold tore apart two capsules and turned on the faucet, mixing the yellow powder with water and drinking it. He then swallowed 31 small white pills, believed to be codeine or a powerful tranquilizer. The last Marshall Ross saw, his neighbor laid down on the bed next to his wife and waited for the drugs to work. It took 15 minutes for the police to arrive at the scene. At 5.15 a.m., LAPD detectives Anderson and Pozzo found the doctor on the floor. His head lay on a pillow covered in his daughter's blood, the hammer in his hand. He was still breathing, but just barely. By the time the ambulance arrived, Harold would be dead. The police gathered the rest of the pills and laid them on a dresser in his room. There they discovered on a nightstand... Next to Perelson's bed, a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy. It was opened to Canto One. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Mm. Mm. So. I do know this story. I do know this story. Let's talk about this house. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
50-year-old oh. Harold Perelson killed his 42-year-old wife, Lillian, tried to kill Judy, 18 years old, um, and for some reason stopped with Debbie and Joel. Debbie was 11 years old. Joel was 13 years old. Hmm. Did not kill them. Uh, and then... Thankfully, but Jesus. Thankfully. And then when his neighbor got there, went upstairs and took his own life. Mm. Mm. So the house itself is built in Spanish revival style. Mm -hmm. It's a handsome home. It's at 2475 Glendower Place. Was originally designed in 1925 for Harry F. Schumacher by architect Harry E. Weiner. This is the part for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for you. When Schumacher died, the house was sold on December 6th, 1932, coincidentally the same date that Harold Perelson lost his goddamn mind, you know, Mm. a decade or so later, Mm -hmm. a couple of decades later. Um, Next, Frederick Zelnick moved in. Zelnick, an influential producer, director from uh, from German silent cinema, was forced to flee Germany for London after Hitler rose to power in 1933 moving to Los Angeles, where he continued to produce movies until his death in 1950. 2475 Glendower Place is currently on the market for $2.5 million, which we'll get into later. I mean, that's too too much. That's too much. Murder should Uh, drive the property value down. Actually, it's, it's actually... Pretty good for the area. Uh, <laughs> this is the description <laughs> of the home murder. on Realtor. Uh, yeah, right, murder. Uh, this is the description of the home on Realtor.com. Major price improvement. It's <laughs> my favorite. Really, I could just stop there. I want to describe the rest of the house, but that's the reason I said it is because that part made me laugh out loud. Uh, <laughs> seller motivated and ready to sell. Attention developers, contractors, here's a unique opportunity in prime Los Feliz, a neighborhood that is home to movie stars, musicians, and Hollywood elites. Perched on a hill with sweeping views sits this five-bedroom, four-bath Spanish revival home on a large lot. Features include a grand entrance with step-down living room embracing serene views, formal dining room, library, study, large entertainer kitchen, and a ballroom or multi-purpose room on the third floor. The house features a three-car garage at street level, plus an additional two-car garage at the end of the driveway for those collectors. Hmm. This is a very special opportunity, and it awaits the right buyer with a vision for real value by doing a remodel or ground-up development. Property will not qualify for financing. Property interior has been taken down to the studs. Seller is looking at cash or hard money offers only. Seller financing may be available. If you're looking, if you're into the market, anybody. <laughs> yeah. God, just the, man, the copy. And you know, they, they go out of their way to try to make this appealing and whatever. But mm-hmm. all I can think of is murder, 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 mm-hmm. house, murder. People died there like right. a murder, horribly. Now, murder, this murder, is murder, a 5,000 square feet mansion. It's a big house. Yeah. It is. It is so yeah, I guess with two mil the... is, is a steal. It's, Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, so still, still. in 1950, <clears throat> that's when in the 50s, that's when the Perelsons stepped in. Hmm. Let's talk about Harold for a little bit. Okay. He was born on February 1st, 1909. So he was an Aquarius, which, you know, it's <laughs> a fellow air sign to both of us. And, you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. I just needed to say it. Okay. The eldest of four He's children. He's a fucking murderer. Her- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right. Um, 
The eldest of four children, Harold's parents were part of a flood of 13 and a half million immigrants, many of them blue-collar Poles, Italians, and Slavs, escaping their countries and ready for that sweet, sweet American dream that is totally still a real thing that can be accomplished, especially for immigrants. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, sad. That's so, oh, yeah. that's... <laughs> At that time, Ouch. though, the rags-to-riches thing was more common, especially with second-generation children. The parents would come, set the kids up, and the kids would excel. Harold became a doctor. Unfortunately, the son of Jewish immigrants wasn't fashionable in New York at the time. So I think they lived in Queens. Mm. So Harold decided to move to California where tastes were a little more favorable. And he did well. He was hired at an Inglewood physician's office, Mm. published several papers in the field of neurology, and eventually became a cardiology professor at the USC School of Medicine. He married Lillian Silver, also a second-generation immigrant. And after having three children, they settled down in the dream home they found in Los Feliz, which they bought for $60,000. Oh, God. Now, that is like $500,000 in today's monies. For the house, that seems a really good price comparative to now, uh, right? Yeah. They, they, they paid the equivalent of half a million for it, but it's listed completely gutted for two and a half million right now. But no, and no one at the time, no one, and no one had been murdered there when they no. got it. So it's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the changed. actual fuck? I, <laughs> I guess yeah. so. My God. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> people are still making, you know, the minimum wage hasn't changed since then. No, I'm just kidding. It has, but it, <laughs> barely, it's still ridiculous. Barely. Uh, Harold seemed to be pretty mild man, a pretty mild mannered individual. So where did this unsettling act of violence and murder come from? One expert who specializes in husbands who commit familicide mm. has familicide, 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 <laughs> familicide, um, familicide, has said that a man who murders his wife and at least one child tends to be an older gentleman in his 50s and oh. an average of seven years older than his spouse. Harold, at 50, uh, and eight years older than Lillian. Yeah. So he was both of those. Uh, oh, these men the middle, are like, the interested fuck? in their public image. So when there's a chance their public image might be harmed, it's like a narcissistic like, injury. I know what'll fix it. Murdering my family. Murder, yeah. They're the going to the love murders, this. Yeah. Jesus. They act like sort of damage control for them. I don't know Ugh. how murdering people is going to help your reputation. That doesn't make sense to me. Like, but I have never just... murdered someone. So much less family members. So it's probably good that we don't understand yeah, that mentality. Yeah, true. Right? But still. God. I don't understand it. But that's a I thing. Okay. Uh, uh. So, so then what is the narcissistic injury, right? What could have happened to trigger mm. this? Well, and it could be a few things. For one, in December of 1938, Harold filed a patent for an invention he spent a decade developing that would attach to a hypodermic syringe. And it basically would help reduce the danger of contamination and spillage, whatever was in the syringe. In 1949, he entered into a verbal agreement with a gentleman called Edward Schustak, a man he had hoped would basically market his idea better in exchange for half the profits. Harold and Lillian Perelson put in uh, $24,000 of their money into the project, 7000 of which came from Lillian's own savings. So they were ready to succeed. But as it turns out, Shoestack was a real dickhead and had no intention of sharing the money with the Perelsons. Fucker. He wanted to take that patent and sell it on his own and take all of the proceeds for it. So Harold uh, took him to court. Logical thing. Right, right. 
two years of dealing with courts, which is hell of expensive. Don't ask me how I know, but just trust me. It's pretty fucking expensive. I hear. I hear it's not cheap. It's not. Uh, and then the decisions take for fucking ever. And then heaven oh. forbid somebody fucking appeal a case they know they can't win. This isn't about me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just an observation about the legal system in general. I, I got it. Gotcha. Right. It's gotcha. Just, yeah, it's expensive. Gotcha. It, it takes a long time and it's expensive. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Um, eventually, though, Harold did win. However, he had asked for $100,000, which would have been close to a million dollars in today's monies, but he was awarded just under 24000 So he didn't even uh, get enough to buy his as own house. As, well, he didn't make as much as what they had put into it. Oh, so certainly geez. not on t- the lawyer's fees on top Jesus. of all of that. Those weren't covered as well. So why not go kill that motherfucker? Like, why kill <laughs> right? your family? Like, they, um, your wife helped you, and you're going to kill her? Go take the ball-peen hammer to the thieving piece of shit. Right? Sorry. Who, I'm not condoning yeah, murder. But if you have to murder someone, right. murder someone who maybe deserves it. Just yes. saying. And again, I'm just trying to find out what this narcissistic injury is. What right, could right, have happened, right? Right, right. So... That was a huge financial loss, right, and stressor. Then, three years later, Judy was driving Debbie and Joel around when she got into an accident. The driver of the other car said Judy had run a stop sign, but Harold sued her anyway, so I'm not sure who was at fault. It seems that the courts agreed with Harold, and um, even though he had asked for, like, $20,000 for each of the girls and $10,000 for Joel because they had all been injured— uh, the court said, we're only going to cover, we're only going to make her cover the medical bills. Mm. So apparently the woman was at fault, but instead but of all of this extra money, it was just what covered medical bills. Jesus. So, and also I believe Debbie had a cut cheek. So mm. perhaps asking for $20,000 for a cut cheek is excessive. <laughs> I mean, right. clearly, clearly they were, I mean, they were, I think they were just using the opportunity of suing this, this accident to yeah. like using this accident as an excuse to sue and try to recoup their losses for the unrelated yes. fucking patent right. issue. Right. As an option. Yeah. Just mm. to try to make the most out of a bad situation, I guess is the yeah. way to put it. But in a way that is manipulating the court system and it didn't work out. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. Um, so here he is again, even broker than before and getting Jeez. twisted by the court system, which you know, doesn't make him special. <laughs> nope. But, nope. Yes. Not by any means. In fact, Judy wrote a letter to her aunt not long before the incident. She wrote, my family is on the merry-go-round again. Some pro- Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. So this letter was ba- basically said same shit different day. <laughs> so, <laughs> Here we are so again. The, yeah, the kids uh, were aware. Like that yeah. there was a problem as well. Mm. But, oh, um, at, and then on top of that at the time, their friends and family, neighbors, everybody knew that Harold had had a few heart attacks, largely God. assumed to be due to stress. Mm. That said, all of this is going on, financial strife, he's having heart attacks, that's expensive, you got to deal with the hospitals and all that. Just Judy thinks. was still driving a new sports car not long before the attacks. So I think it's safe to assume Harold was still putting on a show of comfort. Oh, yeah. Even when their lives were anything but. <sighs> Jesus. And that just don't is further complicated when you find out that according to court records, these heart attacks Harold had suffered from 
were not heart attacks at all. Uh-oh. They were suicide attempts. Uh-oh. After his most recent attempt, Lillian and or his doctors, they don't know if it was like a team effort or just one, uh, but they were planning to wait a certain discreet period of time after his last, quote, heart attack, and then have him committed. Okay. Right? Well, especially back in those days, like, it, it, you didn't want to... You often, like, people would often, if they got admitted to, to uh, for psychiatric treatment, uh, what little of it there was... Uh, available at the time, like you, you always told people like it was a heart attack. It was the, it was something yes. like medical because there was such a stigma. Um, right. So and so uh, that's kind of why like he had had his attempt, his suicide attempt, uh, and then they had to wait for him to recover a certain amount of time so that it didn't look suspicious when he went into the hospital again. Yeah. Oh, right. God. So, so, so there fucked. you have it. It's Narcissistic so injury, up. especially a full on. Uh, being institution like being committed institutionalized there's i think that is your narcissistic injury that's something yeah. that yeah clearly yeah Ugh. all of it together but that to me is the big is mm. the big one um and again before we start feeling too sad for mr perelson i'd like to let everyone know that tragically it was not the blow to the back of her skull that killed lillian the coroner report stated she had asphyxiated on her own blood oh that's how she had died so, uh, uh, you know, it's a sad story for him, but he's still a fucking monster. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He could have just taken um, his own fucking life if he was that yeah. committed to the idea that his, like, that his life wasn't worth living anymore. Why the fuck did he have to take everyone with him? Like, fuck that. Yeah. Fuck and I feel that like that's shit. the part of it is like she, if Lillian was going to institutionalize him, then that injury, right, that narcissistic injury could be fixed by getting rid of her. Right. Yeah, but it's like it's and also it, fixed it by just killing himself. Not that it's ever a solution, but right. it's like it's like, dude, if you're already gonna kill yourself, just do that. Just do right. that because like, all this other shit is like, what is it? I, you know, or did he intend to just like kill her and maybe walk away and maybe oh, after killing her, he finally decided, yeah, I'm a monster, I should die. I don't, I right. don't know, but it's like clearly, clearly he's his, uh, he's not in his right mind. He's a fucking monster. No. Like, this, yeah, I'm, and that's the thing is like. What is that? You can't have a logical conversation with an illogical person, so don't even try. It's that right. kind of a thing. Like, we can try to understand it. He's still not making the right choices. Right. But we can try to understand what drove him to that. Yeah. Um, you know, and Debbie, so afterwards, Debbie and Joel were taken in by members of Lillian's family. Judy was mm. 18, and reportedly she has changed her name numerous times Joel ended up becoming Hasidic and moving to Israel none of the children speak of the event and it seems like the internet once it became a thing there has been no shortage of people searching for them oh god why so you know there's one thing I think to have a journalist a real journalist talk to you and see if you're interested but have complete strangers just fucking being yeah yeah no no there are these kind of conspiracy murder sleuths online that are trying to track them down Oh, and it's why? like, you know, why? they're still victims of a really traumatic experience. And yeah. why somebody would want them to relive that is just for their own entertainment, yeah. just for their own entertainment. They're bored. Yeah. So like, let's see if we yeah. can find the person whose dad killed her mother. And see, like, and what was that like for you? Was that like? horrible? Like what? Ooh, ooh, I could answer ooh, that. I could answer it, that for say them. It, it was slower. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> say it yeah. slower. It's fucking awful. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, so as horrible as the murder suicide was the events after the deaths add a strange element to the story which only heightens the tragedy 
A year later, in 1960, the mansion was sold in a probate auction to a Lincoln Heights couple, Emily and Julian Enriquez. The Enriquez's never moved in. In fact, no one has lived in that house since the day Lillian was killed. No one. Well. The Enriquez's used the house for storage, strangely enough. What? They never said why they didn't move in either. They never moved the items belonging to the Perelsons out on top of all of that. So. Nah, they probably just. Huh? Sorry, they probably just bought the house and realized, oh, we can't afford this. And so they're just like, well, let's just leave. I mean, who knows? But like, it feels they like. They still have to pay for it. Yeah, right? but I guess they're but still... I guess if they're not living there, they don't have to pay the electric, the utilities at least. So I, who knows? But that seems really weird. Yeah. That was kind of the. Yeah, the that's. The only thing I could think of is like, and I couldn't find anything about their history or their wealth or anything like that. But the only thing that it could make me like I could think of is maybe they're just so stupid wealthy that they're like, oh, we could get a storage space for real cheap over here. <laughs> it's so weird. I don't know, but it doesn't fit and with maybe, the way and that maybe they one day, the house. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll we'll turn it into a, you know, a, a, right. a getaway house. You know, fuck, it's yeah. rich uh, But they lived in L.A. too. That's so strange. It's Why? very strange. The storage thing is just, it's is very bizarre. And also mm. on top of that, which I'll get into some of that too, they didn't maintain it. And so I would feel like if they were really wealthy, they would still want it to look good. Um, yeah, just but for anyway, the property value. The uh, let's see, do do do. They never, yeah, they never moved this stuff out. So basically, they just packed their items onto the things that were already there and left it alone. It just sat there. It sat there for thirty-four years until Emily Enriquez died and left the house to her son Rudy. Rudy also never lived in the home. He used it for even more storage. He even said once that he stored things that people who died had left him. Other than two cats, he had lived in the house for a small amount of time. He'd go there to, to feed them, to clean out cat boxes and stuff. Other than that, the mansion became a sort of storage unit for dead people's things. SpaghettiOs, which weren't the Perelsons because they weren't marketed um, until after the deaths, along with copies of Life... Amongst mm. other very basic hoarding materials, like people who could not throw away things. Mm. If you look at the pictures taken inside, there are a few areas that you can see before it was gutted. Uh, it just looks musty, grimy, and gross. It looks to me like it smells like cat piss and mothballs. Ugh. Right? You know, that's just kind of, it Ugh. looks just like a hoarder's house. Oh. Um, except nobody lived there. And the neighbors probably won't disagree with me. The Enriquez's didn't do much to maintain the house over the decades. In fact, the neighbors got together to repaint the garage doors at street level and deal with the overgrown lawn. They even Mm. placed a chain across a driveway that leads to the back of the home, giving each nearby neighbor a key to that lock. That was Mm. it. Mm. Eventually, the city finally stepped in and told them they had to at least maintain the exterior of the home because the uh, stucco was uh, flaking off. Jesus. And so they were like, you got it. You got to do something. Like, you got like, it. You, got you it. can't it's... just have it and just leave it there. On top of that, there was an issue with sex workers and the homeless invading the home. Partiers oh. would hang out and have picnics in the backyard. Eventually, Rudy installed a burglar alarm. I imagine uh, it wasn't so much to protect the property as it was to shut up the neighbors. <laughs> yeah, probably. Rudy passed away in 2015, and still no one had lived in the house. Lisa Bloom, the civil rights attorney and former True TV host, and her husband, entrepreneur Braden Pollock, purchased the home for $2.3 million at another probate auction in 2016 
with the intent of fixing it up. They filed for the right paperwork, construction stuff, all of those things to begin construction, but they never did. They cleaned out the house and gutted it to the studs, but they put it back on the market in 2019. Their hmm. listing is the one that I read earlier. Yeah. And the huh. abandonment and the abandonment of this home, this idea that it has this glimpse into the past on this day of a terrible violent crime has only added to the home's mystery. It gives people a reason for no one moving in, but we will never know why the Enriquez's never moved in. Hmm. And on top of that mystery, we have the stories told from people who have been in and near the home to add to the creep factor. Yeah. For example, there's a very commonly told story that the Chris Christmas tree and presents were still up from the day of the murder. House painter Steve Kalupski told the Los Angeles Times that in 2001, when he glanced over at the mansion from a neighboring uh, dwelling where he was working, he said he could see gifts piled next to what in the dimness appeared to be a Christmas tree through a dark window. But... Now, within the past five years, there are reports of people who've been in the house that did not see the Christmas tree and packages. Well, wasn't the family Jewish? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I was, I was just saying, about like, to say. I mean, I, I guess that doesn't mean they can't put up a, a, a you right. know, a Christmas tree to be, be festive, but it's it seems it's an odd unlikely. Thing. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, with the, the the gifts and everything under the tree, that seems that doesn't seem to right. be a detail you'd find in a, in a Jewish home that did want to put up a tree for, like for the holiday. Right, like, exactly. It's just odd. And that's just that's odd. That's what I was gonna say, Rudy. Uh, he caught a ghost hunter in his house, and that guy. And I guess he was really nice. Everybody said Rudy was a really nice guy. Uh, he just didn't have an interest in uh, moving into the house or doing hmm. anything with it. Hmm. Um, but he ran into this ghost hunter who asked about the Christmas tree stuff, and he said they were Jewish. Why would they have a Christmas tree? So <laughs> then what happened is a rumor started that Rudy's parents had leased the house out for a year in 1960 to 1961, uh, and that uh, the Christmas tree and the presents were theirs. But on the anniversary of the incident, the family left without any of their belongings. Okay. That said, there's nothing factual that supports the story. By all accounts, including from the neighbors, no one has lived there since December 6th, 1959. Like, and, and real talk, if we were there and something really, really terrifying happened, I, I'd grab those Christmas gifts before leaving. I might leave right? the tree, well, and it's not but those like fucking gifts are coming they, with me. Yeah, they didn't. It's not like a situation where the kids wouldn't have had someone go get their things before they moved, right? Right. It wasn't like a haunting that was so scary that nobody could go back in. Right. It was a horrible, horrible, violent crime, but their lives weren't at risk going back in. Right. Your emotional right. lives, for sure. The murderer but, was dead. <laughs> yeah. They, there wasn't, a, yeah. They could have gone and gotten their things. But the, the big red flag for me is the date, mm. December 6th. Right. That's my red flag. Yeah. I do know Jewish people who have had Christmas trees. So it's, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But the date is the thing for me. I'm not saying the painter was lying, but the window was dim and there was a ton of shit stored in that house. Piles of boxes that could have looked like presents and who knows whatever yeah. randomness that could Fair. have appeared to be a tree through a dim window observed from the side of a neighbor's house. And the neighbors are not in that area right up on top of each other. True. Also... And this is my real point. Who the fuck has their presents ready to go on December 6th? <laughs> like, really? Fuck, I haven't I'm, even bought them by December 6th. I know. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to believe that. And then she and she couldn't go online either. I'm, But I'm supposed to believe that anyone would be ready that soon, much less this particular woman. Because back then, you know, it was all up to her. But this particular oh, yeah. woman 
would have everything sorted out and ready to go while also dealing with financial problems and her husband's multiple suicide attempts. Really? I don't buy it. I don't think that's accurate. That said, the house does seem to have a very creepy energy. Some of the homeless who tried to stay in the house reported unsettling chills, mysterious Mm. footsteps, unholy noises at night. Neighbors report a feeling of being followed. One neighbor told the L.A. Times that a friend of hers tried one night to explore the mansion in what she described as a Nancy Drew moment. (laughs) (laughs) The woman forced open a rear door and walked in, but she didn't get far before a burglar alarm went off. She turned around and left, joking later about ghosts when she returned to the neighbor's home. But then she realized her hand was throbbing. When she went to look at it, there was a red streak going up her arm. Ooh. Whoopsies, she'd been bitten by a black widow. Uh-oh. Oh, don't go into abandoned homes. Um, <laughs> She had to go to the doctor immediately. Stupid, yes. Ghostly, maybe not. Mm. But for the neighbor, when her alarm went off over and over again two nights later, she was left feeling as though something had followed her friend back to her house. <laughs> According to Rudy... The only spooky thing there is me. Tell people to say their prayers every morning and every evening and they'll be okay. Which I think is an odd thing to say. Do they need to say their prayers to stay safe from Rudy? Or did Rudy know something was off about the home? Or, or, Mm. is Rudy now haunting the house? Why would he haunt a house he didn't really want to live in? Like, why would he haunt a house where he didn't even go? Because all this stuff was there. His things. But then again, too, you think about a museum and all these things that were there. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what ad- was attached to those things, right? It's a yeah, bunch of other people's yeah, dead, like dead people's things, Mikey. Dead people's things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on top of that, weird things still happen that cannot be explained. Mm. Like the home's burglar alarm that sometimes screams in the middle of the night, making neighbors sit up sit up in their beds. Perhaps I mean, that could be cockroaches and fucking rats that invest in the place. It could be trespassers, too, right? Yeah, They're and still trespassers. trying to get a look at the house. People are still trying to break in. Perhaps it's something more. We don't know. But some of the people who report feeling watched as they walk by the house look up to find a woman looking out at them from an upper floor window until she disappears. And those who have made it inside have reported hearing screams, running, and the sounds of a man moaning. Oh. In my movie, <laughs> the house itself has simply held on to the last words Harold Perelson ever said. Go on home. Don't bother me. Ooh. And so I want to close with this passage oh. written by Jeff oh. Mesh in his article, The Murder House. Perhaps those who obsess with ghosts are just searching for the reassurance of an afterlife. Maybe the true terror in this house is the very real specter of a loving father and husband who turned into a hammer-wielding killer. A doctor with a bathroom full of narcotics and ready-to-shoot syringes. Failure gnawing at his mind and darkness eclipsing his soul. He is a suburban monster more frightening than any horror movie trope. That his story lives on in internet forums and local lore is a chilling reminder that it could happen to any family, Mm. even yours. (gasps) And there's the Lost Belief murder house. Moral of the story, don't have a family. They're just too much trouble. (laughs) 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 They don't have a family. They might murder you. 
That's right. That's, That's right. the moral of the story. That's what I take away from that. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> also, yeah. man, don't just enter into a verbal agreement with people. You got to have a no. contract. Otherwise, yeah. you, you know, red you might. Red flags. There are red, red flags, flags all red over that. Red flags. Oh, God. You know, and it used to be, you know, especially in the 20s and 30s, it was more common to believe, you know, you you shook hands. That was that was it. It was a legal agree, a binding agreement if you shook hands on it. But if there's no proof, if there's no evidence. Yeah, if no one's there to really say, hard. yeah, they shook hands, it can yeah. be like, you know, did you shake hands? No. All right. You know, fuck it. Yeah. Man, it's just weird. It's just yeah. weird. But, just don't put yourself in that position. But Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's. Well, th- uh, well thank you for that story. And and I did. I did know that story, in fact. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for going into the deep dive. Yeah, no, um, there are a lot of, a lot of details I didn't know, but I knew I had heard the Christmas tree thing. And it's yeah. The whole time, and you would, well, the idea was you'd go in and it was like a moment in time. That is not the case. You would go in and it was just a trash owl mansion. Yeah, just a, full of hoarding shit. Hoarder's paradise. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm, mm, and mm. so, you know, Lisa Bloom and her husband, at least they gutted it, they cleaned it out. Um, if you go to Realtor.com, you can see the. Um, the inside of it they have taken several pictures it's just gutted yeah uh, but they you see the exterior and the interior of the house uh, 2.5 million they so they put it on the market last year for 3.5 million and then this summer dropped it down to 2.5 so sorry i'm fighting with an invisible presence in my booth it suddenly uh, decided michael just started fanning himself it is very hot in here yeah. All the, all and then he's fanning air. something next to him. Just making sure my imaginary friend is getting cool as well. No, there was like a bug in here. <laughs> yeah, there's something because it's uh, the camera's having a hard time focusing on you. Yeah, it's weird. It keeps focusing and backing up. We didn't have any of the like same technical difficulties when you were telling your story this time. I, don't I know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Great. Great. Oh, well, <sighs> thank you for telling us that story. It was really, really cool. No problem. And thank you for uh, t- finishing yeah. up your story. Yeah. Go buy the book and yes. read the whole thing. Yeah. And there's a follow-up book called uh, uh, Blessed of the Wicked, I think. Yeah. And that's a, supposedly a follow-up to his experiences in your house. Yeah. So the story continues, I guess. I have to look into and it and see. we have a chat. A fantastic uh, chat. Yeah. Saturday, Saturday. Right? Saturday at noon, that. Central Standard Time. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we'll have that. And I'm looking forward to that. That's always a really good time. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess that's it. Goalintentions.com. Send us your stories. Please do. Um, and I guess stay safe. Stay sane. And, and remember. remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> just. <laughs> Wait. Okay. okay. It's, okay it's, uh, and I remember. Sleeps on. Stay late. It's okay to sleep with the lights I broke. on. It's okay. And remember. <laughs> it's, it's okay a, to sleep with the okay lights, lights on. <laughs> Matt, please it's leave okay. all of that in. It's okay to sleep with the lights on. It's okay to sleep with the lights on. It's okay to sleep with the lights on.